Red. Kia ora, everybody. What's up? It is Rebet. I am here with a Voyager CEO, CB Waterhouse. How are you, my friend? Yeah, good. Thank you. Mate, uh, we've had the CEO of Vodafone on. We've had the CEO of Spark on. It is only right that we share the love, keep the CEO game rolling, especially in the telco space. And um, you're next up in the mix. Uh, how are you? Where are you? What is going on? Uh, I'm good. I'm just working from my home office. So, um, yeah, obviously you would have heard a bunch of stuff uh, from um, Spark and and Voda CEOs if you um, watch Robert's uh, podcast. Um, but, um, yeah, Voyage has got about 1% market share, so we provide internet to 20,000 homes and businesses and majority of, uh, majority of those are fibre. Um, and got about 110 staff. So... Um, as soon as the virus started kicking off, we did a business continuity test and um, basically got everyone working from home and trialed that and perfected everything. So, um, yeah, we were we were pretty much ready by the time the whole lockdown happened. So we've got 110 staff working from home, um, call centres fully operational. Um, nice. Last year, we upgraded our network from 10 gigabits per second to 100 gigabits um, in anticipation of the Rugby World Cup. Um, and that was, that was great because at the time we were really only doing sort of just over 10 gigabits and our network was kind of starting to hit capacity. But, um, just today our internet traffic has peaked by 30% from what it was a week ago. So, yeah. um, and we've got a lot of people upgrading to gigabit fiber from, you know, hundred meg cause they've got four people in the household and all that got kind of thing. It. So everyone's on the so, upgrade session, but you, and you've, you've been able to navigate the, the businesses still stay operational and, and deal with all the customer demands and what they're all wanting? Yeah, we've got, um, as much as I imagine Spark and Vodafone have, we've got about 50% um, higher call volume, so I um, appreciate okay. people's patience. But normally we answer, as a company, Voyager answers 95% of our calls within 30 seconds. So we're sort of, um, you know, up to like, you know, down to 80% within 30 seconds, but still pretty good. Um, uh, often better than the big guys, not trying to knock them. Um, but yeah, we, we try and keep a bit of spare capacity, but yeah, just, just people effectively, um, the main things are people upgrading from 30 megabit or hundred megabit fiber to gigabit fiber. So they can have the whole household yep. working nice and fast. Unfortunately, chorus isn't doing installs. So people that have ADSL or VDSL can't get, you know, fiber while yep. this is going on. Um, but the other thing that's interesting is, of course, that every, you know, I, I thought that um, uh, we would be relatively unaffected being um, an internet company and that everyone's going to be needing internet. And I own several businesses. One of them, I've got a helicopter tourism company. So that's completely, you know, completely dead. We've got, you know, a machine or two on the ground with zero revenue and still have to pay the mortgages and things. So that's going to be a tough yep. business. Um and, um, you know, property businesses, I've got uh, several, six commercial buildings, um, which was, you know, from money from past ventures and, um, yeah, any educational tenant or whatever is, is, is seeing stress because they're not, you know, running schooling or whatever. But even with Voyager, um, interestingly, we, we have had a few cancellations and things because um, obviously every, you know, one person's income is, is another person's expenses. And so, um, you know, while we thought, oh, everyone's going to keep their internet connections, there's a bunch of, you know, bars and cafes and, um, you know, schools and things that are already under pressure and saying, well, you know, if this goes on a month or two months or whatever, we don't want our connection. So um, 
yeah, I thought I thought an internet company would be the least affected, but even we are seeing things, which means that mm. you know, obviously, other industries as well are going to be seeing huge, you know, strain. I mean, obviously, a lot of sympathy for you know something like a, a viaduct bar owner where mm. you know maybe their landlord saying you've got to pay the rent because I've got to pay the mortgage and they've got zero income for how long and maybe they have to let their staff go and then when they re when they reopen they're going to have to try and find staff. I mean, it's going to be very hard for. Mm you know, a lot of people. Um, but, you know, on the other side of things, I suppose, trying to stay positive, you know, I have thought that potentially this is a bit of an opportunity for a, a you know, a global consciousness shift and that, you know, we can all reconnect with our, you know, gardens and families and hobbies and um, those kind of things. And obviously, you know, there is a um, lower environmental impact. So, you know, there aren't planes in the sky that, you know, public transport's gone down, you know, people aren't driving. So, um, you, I'm sure you will have seen in the news that the um, Venice canals, the water's clear for the first time in like three or 400 years. And, you know, there's dolphins swimming around, you know, close to piers and Croatia. And, um, you know, so maybe when people come out of their slumber and hibernation, once this is all over and they say, wow, you know, the, the planet looks better and the air smells fresher. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's people in China that have never seen a blue sky because they just live in a place that's constantly polluted um, and, you know, maybe if, if they get to the stage where things turn around, they'll say, well, we want to make this happen permanently because, you know, we've obviously got other issues besides this, um, you know, global warming, ecological destruction, forestry destruction. Um, so maybe this is a bit of a global trial run for a real emergency and something that we needed to kick us in the pants and, um, you know, get us uh, all working together as Team Planet Earth. Mm. Yeah, you've gone a few different spots there, and I want to unpack a couple of them. But I, th I think as well for the for I mean, most people know know your gig and where you're at and where you're from. But I think your your view on this is quite interesting, right? Young Buck started a tech company, stacked cash at I think you sold at what twenty nine or something. Sold it was sold yeah. the twenty five mil or something. You've gone through a whole bunch of um, I guess ups and downs with 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 market, and you've 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 had a You've had a pretty crazy journey and then you've had the health shit and now you've got the spiritual shit and whatever. And so like when you look at the world today, 2020 saves, how do you how do you see it different to you did 10 years ago? Yeah, it's interesting. So, um, yeah, as you say, I was uh, 29 years old. I've been running Orcon, um, another internet company that a lot of New Zealanders will know or have heard of. Um, and I sold that to Cordia, which was a you know government-owned, state-owned enterprise for 25 million back in 2007. And so I ended up with a huge pile of cash, you know, 25 mil burning a hole in my pocket. Went and bought a 10 million dollar house and um, other While lifestyle properties. While you're under properties. 30, yeah. Um, so my my first house was yeah 10 million dollar sort of property, but that was all at the peak of um, 2007. And then I basically yep. spent you know nearly 20 million dollars in a few weeks because. Um, you know, people consume, uh, can confuse wealth with um, cash. So, you know, I, I was a young guy that had a company, but I was still living on like baked beans and renting a two-bedroom house in Glenfield. And, you know, through my 20s, I basically sacrificed my 20s, you know, worked 16 hours a day, seven days a week, had no holidays. Hustle. And, hustle, you know, hustle, built, hustle. built this organization that was really valuable, but I didn't have a lot of cash. I didn't have... Um, anything and then all of a sudden the checks got so big that the temptation to just kind of sell out yeah. um you know 
got too much for me. And um, I, I, I regret doing that because I sort of worked my ass off, created an amazing organization. And then, you know, the checks got so big that I was just like, I'm never going to need any more money than, you know, 20 and 25 million. Um, but then a few years later, Orcon was worth, you know, maybe 150 million. So I kind of missed out on that, you know, the last bit of the exponential, you know, hockey stick. Um, but essentially what happened is, um, as soon as I'd sold, um, as I say, I spent a ton of money, started partying, and, and then the 2008 the global dove, financial dove. crisis happened. You got, you, you got the Rari? You got the red yeah. Rari? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just making um, just verve bottles everywhere, just... <laughs> yeah, yeah. My thirtieth birthday, I I went. I had I got two hundred bottles of Verve, so I went through. Oh, I don't know how geez. much it was. But, um, Balled out, dog. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was a fun. It was a fun life. And um, but yeah, I got. I ended up in the two thousand eight financial crisis, like um, all of us. And that yeah. was a complete surprise because Aloha was a very good um, business person in terms of operation and and that kind of thing. I hadn't really paid any attention to the global economy. Or you know what was going on in a macro sense, and so I was completely unprepared for 2008. Lost a bunch of money, and then had to kind of pivot, and basically ended up in a situation where I bought a really expensive house at the peak, which then wasn't worth what I paid for it, and then I couldn't get money out because everyone needed money in 2008. So I sort of ended up in this strange situation where I was living in a 10 million dollar house, but I had basically run out of cash, and um, mm you know, had a few things came up and then made some silly decisions and lost a bunch of money. And then so I was in this feeling, this sort of sense of, of, of um, you know, lack. And, um, you know, obviously, um, you know, I'm sure I don't get a lot of sympathy out there because people are like, well, you still had a $10 million house. Yeah, but, stuff you, you're you know, 30 with 30, 30, 20, 30 million. Oh, <laughs> poor CB in his yeah. mansion. <laughs> yeah, but there's a, there's a big... There's a big difference between cash flow and um, you know assets, and when the price of assets start falling rapidly, you end up um, in a situation yeah. where you know people get more afraid at the bottom of a market and they get more exuberant at the top of a market. So, in 2008 and you know just recently, people were way more greedy than they should have been because the fundamentals mm. weren't there, and so you know the share market recently has just been way overvalued, way overpriced. So yeah, even you think before, so? You think it's been over? You think we're in the same? Do you think we're in, a, in the same headspace of naivety to the realities of of what it actually is? You think that's what we're? Yeah. Been at? Well, basically, what happened is that um, the the financial crisis never went away. So, as I said, um, after two thousand eight, I started paying attention to the global economy and doing a lot of reading. So I've been researching and studying for ten years, trying to figure out what's going to happen next, and. Um, basically, the 2008 global financial crisis never went away. So what happened is that um, the 2008 financial crisis started way back in 1999 when President Clinton and the Republicans um, overturned something called the Glass-Steagall Act. And the Glass-Steagall Act was um, something that was enacted after the 1929 US Depression that said that merchant banks, which do you know things like share trading and... Um, Main Street banks, which do things like house lending, had to be separated. And so when those things were no longer separated, what happened is the merchant banks um, like, you know, Lehman Brothers and uh, Merrill Lynch and things started taking over the mainstream banks and doing financial engineering. And that's when they came up with the idea of, um, you know, these products, which are called like collateralized debt obligations or, you know, mortgage securities, where effectively... Um, the investment banks encouraged their main street banks to make risky loans and then they could bundle those up and then sell them to things like 
um, yep. you know, New Zealand superannuation things and say, look, we've got a new product, which is, you know, high return, but zero risk. And then the rating agencies like Moody's basically said, yep. you know, all of this mortgage debt is AAA rated, even if it contained huge amounts of B and C grade things. And, you know, um, so what happened is this, this um, easy, cheap money policy of, you know, lending to people. I mean, in the US, you were able to get a 110% mortgage with basically no income before 2008, where, say, for example, you bought a million dollar house, you might be able to borrow $1.1 million so that you can buy a house, uh, sorry, a car and a big flat screen TV and all that kind of thing. And they wouldn't even check how you were going to pay for it because the investment banks were making so much money packaging up these mortgage securities and then, you know, so, you know selling them down the line. So um, the cause of the 2008 financial crisis was too much easy credit. And then when everything blew up, um, you know, the natural uh, way for these things is that, um, you know, people who took too much risk should have had some pain. But what the US decided to do and the Federal Reserve was bail everyone out, which was mainly, um, you know, homeowners, but also really the banks got the majority of the $700 billion, you know, TARP um, payout. Yep. And this and, was with Hank and Bernanke, right? Yeah. So essentially, um, all monies are basically created out of thin air. And so the Federal Reserve essentially created $700 billion, which they do by, you know, buying government bonds. So yep. the US government says, you know, can we have some money? And then they create the money and then they do a swap so that it balances on both sides. Um, and basically what happened is the solution to the 2008 financial crisis was even more cheap money and 0% interest rates and yep. even easier lending. So, you know, because what happens is if, if, if everyone had been allowed to um, fail naturally, then, you know, there would have been mass bankruptcies and you would have had some of the things of like the 1930s. So basically the Fed and the this U.S. government after decided... AIG and Lehman and... Yeah, so the, the, the U.S. Yep. government and the Federal Reserve to try decided to try a new tactic, which was essentially um, basically the the cause of the disease, which was cheap credit, which causes malinvestment and, um, you know, risk-taking. The solution was even easier credit and even lower interest rates. So, you know, in 2007, interest rates were 5%, and that was probably too low, and lending was too easy. And then now we've basically had globally, you know, U.S. interest rates at like, you know, 1%. And basically what that's, what that's meant is it's created this huge bubble. So when you can borrow money at close to zero, it makes um, risk-taking investments very easy to do. So, for example, the U.S. shale industry blew up, and shale is essentially where they get hot steam and pump it in under the rocks, and then they extract oil, which is not normally viable to extract. But when you're a, when you're a company that can borrow money at next to nothing, then, of course, you make those investments. And so there's this, you know, trillion dollar shale industry in the US and Canada that sort of exploded and blew up to compete with Saudi Arabia, which doesn't make any sense, you know, normally. And but it then at low it with a nudge. Yep. Yeah. And when you've got low interest rates, you know, for example, um, there's been all these scandals around share buybacks. So publicly listed companies, because they can borrow money cheaply, what they do is they borrow money at next to zero percent interest. They buy back their shares, which means there's fewer shares per dollar of income which then raises the share price which makes the stock market look good and then instead of paying their managers you know multi-million dollar salaries they can give them share options which looks better on the financials but what it does is it makes the companies significantly weaker so the likes of um, 3M and Boeing are like the worst offenders where essentially what they've done is they took a, a company that had huge assets 
they've loaned away all of their all of their assets. Um, you know, like I, I, I can't remember the exact figures. I think Boeing had sixty billion dollars of assets, and then they've reduced that by ninety percent, borrowed themselves up to the hilt. So it's like it's like a person. If you have a credit, if you if you have money in the bank and you're living within your means, you, you're in a strong financial position. And if something like the virus comes along, you can weather the storm. But what US companies have been doing is like maxing out their credit cards because they've had low interest, um, spending like crazy, going to the strip club, um, yeah. you know, making, making investments. Yeah. And then, you know, they want to be bailed out. And um, of course, effectively in the US, you've got this interesting system that, um, you know, all of the all of the political parties, whether they be Democrats or Republicans, are in the hands of rich donors because they allow money in their political system. And so basically, if you're a Boeing or a Facebook or whatever, you can go into the Senate and you can give, you know, some senator $10 million and he will, you know, pass whatever bills you want. So then, of course, what's happening is that the next bailouts, which are happening, and, you know, I mean, they're printing basically 10 times as much money as in the 2008 financial crisis. In 2008, you know, the world got into such a calamity that we were within 30 minutes of ATMs all around the world not issuing cash and not working. Because um, if people lose faith in the monetary system or the banking system and, and banks stop lending to each other and cash stops moving around, then no one can settle transactions. And because no one had any faith in the U.S. banking system, you know, all banks worldwide kind of were grinding to a halt. So it took a lot of effort for Obama to get the Republicans across the line to do that 700 billion bailout. And it was an arduous process and it didn't happen too slowly. But I mean, what we've seen with the, you know, the um, virus bailouts is the, the Federal Reserve almost instantly just went and printed, you know, $3 trillion yep. and they're printing more and more and more. So the, the total bailouts this time, uh, I would estimate going to be 10 times as much as last time. But the so trouble with the is, same strategy? Yeah, the same strategy. But the issue this time is that interest rates are already sort of at zero. So say, for example, if you've got um, an economy that's paying 5% interest and then it gets into trouble and then the government says, okay, we're going to lower interest rates to zero, then the people that were having trouble paying their mortgages or business lending or whatever, um, all of a sudden say, oh, well, my interest bill's gone down. I've got a little bit of headroom. I can, yeah. um, you know, now I can pay my rent. Now I can pay whatever. But if you've already been borrowing at zero, making risky investments, doing share buybacks, and interest rates were already at zero, then um, the Fed doesn't have the ammunition of lowering interest rates. So that's no. out of out of Which ammo. actually leads and, further, further yeah. down the, the, the pipe. And so right. the, only thing, the only thing the Fed's got is basically to print money to give to people. But the thing is, there's a difference between um, wealth and money. And every, um, every you know, wealthy nation has kind of confused this over time. So... You know, the Netherlands 300 years ago got this wrong. And then, you know, the Weimar Republic, you know, Germany um, got this wrong where, you know, before World War II, you know, Germany had those trillion mark things and you could have a wheelbarrow of money and it wouldn't pay for bread. So money is essentially a, a trust concept. And because the U.S. is now printing so much money, um, I think that they're basically going to end up in a situation where the Federal Reserve's out of ammo. They've been able to they've been able to resurrect the economy three times. Um, they've been able to resurrect it once in the dot-com bubble in 2001. Yep. twice in the US housing bubble and then three times in this bubble. But, you know, President Trump's kind of getting a bit of a free ride because he has been fooling the American public saying, you know, we've got this great economy and everything's going amazing and the share market's going crazy. But the whole thing has basically been a cheap money bubble and that's percolated all around the world. So, you know, the reason that Auckland house prices tripled over a 10-year period um, 
and you know houses in Greyland that were $300,000 were all of a sudden a million dollars has nothing to do with immigration and nothing to do with anything else. It just has to do with the fact that when money is cheap globally and yep. um, it's being suppressed and kept artificially low be below normal lending rates, then you know people can afford to pay more, and so they do. So say, for example, you know, if you are earning $100,000 a year and um, you, know, you have an interest rate of 10% and you can only afford with that um, income, you know, say a $500,000 house, well, if interest rates all of a sudden go from 10% to 5%, well, then all of a sudden you can make you, um, you know, twice as much payments. So then the prices start going up. So effectively, it's just the laws of supply and demand. And so, you know, basically what's happening is you know, Trump's been, Trump's been, in, Trump inherited this bubble that um, Obama perpetuated, and he has been um, encouraging all kinds of malinvestment. And you know, so say for example, you know, Boeing, Boeing, like last time it was the auto companies, you know, General Motors and that kind of thing got bailed out by the taxpayer. But um, I, I completely, you know, I'm a private business owner. I have to run my business um, sensibly and I run it, you know, within the, the rules and we don't have the same sort of financial system as they do in the US. But I don't believe in bailouts at all. I think that they're a terrible idea and Ooh, they're sold to the call. public. Big call. Well, well let so me if, you were, if you were Hank, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have bailed out but, but um, was it Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac or whatever the shit was? You wouldn't have done that. No, you wanted not at all. And I'll explain why. So, say for example, I, I think Big what's cool. going to happen is that you know Boeing, uh, Boeing and 3M are going to get bailed out this time, right? And you know, okay, Boeing's an airline. People think, oh, we need we need airlines. We want to employ the um, people that work for the airline. But basically, the reason that Boeing is bust is, as I say, is because they've been reducing their asset base, doing share buybacks, um, not running the company well, and all that's going to happen is effectively if they get bailed out, it's a form of socialism where the public has to dig deep in their pockets um, and prop up a company that could have done a lot better if they had less debt. I mean, if, if you have an airline that doesn't have a lot of debt, then if their planes are sitting on the ground, who cares? But if they're loaded up with debt, then they have to, you know, every single day be flying. And, you know, people say, well, we've got to do the bailouts for the, you know, for the... Um, you know, staff and things. But if you imagine, if we let Boeing go bankrupt, the planes aren't going to disappear. What's going to happen is that someone with a ton of money, like you know, the, um, the Saudis or Bill Gates or whatever, will come Grand, along. Yep. They'll buy those assets for a song, maybe ten cents on the dollar, and then because they didn't pay a huge amount for those assets, they'll be able to run the airline a lot cheaper without the debt, because the debt then gets written off to people that shouldn't have lent that money. And then you'll have lower, a lower-priced airline who's still going to employ the people. I mean, you know, in the US, they're talking about bailing out casinos. I mean, it's absolutely yep. obscene. Why on earth does a casino that makes money hand over fist? I mean, the only person in the world that couldn't actually run a casino properly was Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> and now he's doing the same thing to the US economy. But, you know, casinos are asking for a bailout. Absolutely, you know, screw them. They can go bust. And those buildings will all still be there. The Las Vegas Strip will be there. And someone will come along with a huge amount of money and they'll buy those casinos on, you know, seats on the dollar. They'll reopen them. They'll employ all of the people over there and no one's going to lose their job. And the public then doesn't have to do that bailout. So the public is getting screwed all the time, yeah. you know, and so the reason... I, I know you go. Sorry. The reason that, you know, people are in such a lot of pain and, you know, they, they know that they're... I mean, real wages worldwide haven't gone anywhere since 1970. And this is why you've got violence in France. You've got people... You've got Trump being elected because people are frustrated. And, 
you've got, you know, workers, blue collar workers that are angry all around the world. And so they don't understand what's going on. And so you end up blaming, you know, immigrants and things. But it is essentially, it's not capitalism that's the problem. It's the perversion of capitalism that has caused these issues. And essentially, it's this financialization and um, perversion. So, you know, bailing out things like airlines or, you know, publicly listed companies, publicly listed companies have owners who take risk in order to make a return. If you're just going to do a bailout every single time some public company has an issue, then you're just encouraging risk taking because you're saying you're never going to lose money. You can invest in any company. You can run it as badly as you want. You can be terrible yeah. manager management. And at the end of the day, the public's going to pay the price. And the public that's paying the price club. all over the world has meant that the public's getting screwed. And that's why they're not being paid the wages that they're due to be paid. So, you know, I see capitalism getting blamed. And what's going to happen is that, um, unfortunately, it, it, it makes me really angry that Donald Trump's going to get a bit of a free ride because he's going to be able to blame the coronavirus for you know financial collapse in the USA when really the USA was close to collapse anyway and so this is just the the pin that's pricked the bubble um that, but his that polling's gone anyway. up. his polling's Sorry? gone up his polling's gone up in the last in the last week here people are people are hyped on it regardless of the other stuff it, it's it seems counterintuitive but the, the numbers seem to weirdly enough stack the other way it's crazy yeah, well, I mean, I think the US is an interesting um, country, and I think that their, you know, their rugged individual individualism um, isn't conducive to doing something like, you know, self isolation. I mean, we've seen, you know, the spring bakers in Florida say, you know, screw it, I'm not going to wreck my holiday, and then a bunch of them turned out to have got gotten coronavirus. Um, just today, the US has got the largest number of coronaviruses virus cases worldwide. Yeah. Um, and I think they had 3.3 million on the unemployment this morning, I think was the number. Um, I yeah, think and I mean, the, the absurdity of the whole US system is that, um, you know, their health benefits are tied to employment. So if you no longer become employed, you no longer have health benefits. So, I mean, we're going to see um, mass um, civil unrest in the US. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders' case for um, socialised health care, which I totally believe in, um, is is now being sort of adopted by the Republicans when they were completely, you know, against it. So I think even if Bernie Sanders doesn't win, I mean, he's been screwed out of the, the nomination. He was winning in all the key states that he started with and then mysteriously started losing. I, I'm wondering whether there was, you know, vote rigging and all kinds of things because, you know, if you look at some of the stuff that Biden says, I mean, he's basically just senile and Bernie makes <laughs> a hell of a lot of sense. So... You know, I, I think that I think the Demo I think the Democratic Party is so corrupt that they would rather have someone like Biden to do their bidding and lose against Trump than have someone genuine like Bernie who will actually stand up for the people. I think the U.S. political system is absolutely full of rot, and um, I mean this is what happened last time, right? Bernie went up against um, Hillary. Yep. Um, it, all the polls showed that Bernie would have won against Trump last time. And the Democratic National Convention said, no, we're going to choose Hillary, despite the fact that um, Bernie was polling better. And we're basically seeing the same thing. Bernie's got screwed out of the nomination. They're going to put up Biden. Biden's hopelessly senile and disoriented. He's absolutely going to get eviscerated in any debate with Trump. He's going to look like an absolute idiot and people are going to vote for Trump again. But what we're going to see is that um, last time in 2008, um, so the US has this huge advantage that they run the world's reserve currency. And the reason that they had that is after World War II, you, the US was, you know, uh, a real powerhouse. 
but they were still on the gold standard. And so everyone trusted the US dollar. And so the US dollar sort of just became the world's default currency. And then in 1971, they, they came off the gold standard. And then you had things like the oil price shocks because people said, well, if the dollar's not going to be worth anything anymore, then the price of oil must skyrocket. And then things kind of stabilized, which was a real gift to the US. And so what's happened is that effectively, um, the US has been running this 50-year monetary ex uh, uh, experiment where because they're the world's reserve currency, um, it's a, they're able to do a sort of form of theft um, to other countries. So, for example, they run huge trade deficits with China. So, you know, China makes all of this amazing stuff, ships it to the US, and then the US just opens up the printing press, prints US dollars, pays for it with basically, you know, semi-worthless paper, Free and money, the, world, yeah. the world accepts it. But, and in 2008, all the way up to 2008, that worked, you know, in, in the financial crisis, the US dollar even strengthened because people were looking for sort of safe havens and they thought, well, the global reserve currency. But if you look at what China and, and um, Russia have been doing, both of them have been massively increasing their stores of um, gold. Um, any, any genuine reserve currency needs to have some kind of, you know, backing by gold, um, despite what, you know, people sort of say in the monetary movement theory and I think both China and Russia are super excited at the idea that maybe the yuan or the ruble or whatever will become some form of reserve currency you're already seeing you know the Saudis and things trading with Russia um, in in gold physical gold for oil and so I think that what's going to happen is that this this time around the US dollar is going to get destroyed the US is going to have either inflation or some kind of inflation and so what we're going to see this time is going to be the opposite of 2008, where you end up in an inflationary recession. So in 2008, what you had was low interest rates and, um, you know, a recession, but those low interest rates helped. I think uh, once people realize that the US dollar is, is basically being printed into oblivion, then interest rates are going to rise because people are going to charge more money in a risk premium for the value. And so what we could have happen in the US is rising prices, rising interest rates and a recession where you've got a very deep recession, you've got lots of unemployment, and then you've got prices going up, which is going to hurt the consumer. Um, that's really, I don't see any way around that. And I started mm. buying a little bit of gold um, a year ago because, you know, the fundamentals just looked terrible to me. And um, in, in, in the last year, my gold holdings have basically doubled. You know, we're not talking millions of dollars, we're just talking as an, a little bit of an, a hobbyist investment strategy. Um, I wish that I'd bought a whole lot more and actually backed myself because I sort of saw this coming, as you say, nothing to do with the virus, just the fact that the US economy is kind of on the rocks. And so, you know, gold has been, a, you know, gold effectively is money. It's been the stable thing for, for uh, 2,000 years. I mean, you can go back um, 2,000 years and effectively an ounce of gold in New Zealand dollars today is worth about $2,800. And a really nice Italian suit will cost you about $2,800, um, let's say, which is about an ounce of gold. Well, if you, were, if you were a Roman soldier, a really nice tunic and uniform would have cost you about one ounce of gold. So in terms of gold, really yeah. nice clothing has had no inflation or deflation over 2,000 years. And if you look at a lot of, um, you know, stable goods, that's kind of the situation. So um, I think the Reserve Bank of New Zealand is making a little bit of a mistake where because they're following monetary policy of the US, um, we could be heading down or check checking ourselves into a bit of a monetary roach motel the same way that the US is. Because I we're copy-pasting their strategy of how to deal with it? Yeah, debt monetization essentially, which is where the government says we will just buy the debts and print money to um, print money to compensate. I mean, I think that um, in general, we're doing a fantastic job compared to a lot of other places. 
Um, there's obviously a number of hidden cases, but you know, I think acting early is essential. Um, so, you know, um, Jacinda, great, Grant Robertson, great. But I think if there's any money being printed, it needs to get into the hands of people, you know, real people. It, it needs to not be doing bailouts, as I say, because there's always other people with money who can come in and buy those stranded assets and, you know, run them better and the consumer doesn't need to pay those things. I mean, you know, say, for example, the government said, oh, we're going to bail out, you know, Spark or the railways or something. Well, you know, those, they have management, they have owners and those owners take a risk. As I say, if those risks, if those owners are shielded from any risks, well, then you've got investment and returns without risk, and that's not fair. So, you know, being an investor, owning a share of a company has to come with some sort of risk. And if those companies can't survive and need to be, you know, um, bought bought out, then so be it. So, you know, I'm a fan of um, a stimulative kind of uh, policy. And I think, I think the RBNZ's done some good things, but I'm nervous about essentially following the US model of debt monetization, which we can then, you know, as I say, it's a monetary roach motel where we check ourselves in and then we can never get out of it because interest rates have to stay low forever. And then, you know, people don't have uh, correct al asset allocation and they make, you know, investments that are not sensible. Um, yeah. So, so basically from a, so zoom out, no bailouts, don't follow the strategy of America no bailouts of no bailouts of private or public companies. I think that yeah. I think people on the ground need to be bailed out. Of course, you know people need money for bread and milk and all of that kind of thing. And so I'm money, totally money a fan to of people, that. Not to, not to the not to the crew because I think you're right though. It's that, that idea of there's the points around if you are um, if you know there's that backstop regardless what you do, it just incentivizes bad behaviour. And if that that lane that you're in is already um, predicated, I guess, not necessarily on, on, on greed or selfishness or whatever, but potentially not of the, the, the better good. I can I can see that, but I'm imagining that the devil's advocate would say, if you did that, then all these things would collapse, the world goes into a shit show, and then we're all stuffed, right? That's I'm, I'm sure that would be the arg argument. Yours, you, you, are, you are saying that, that that is wrong? Well, look, essentially what's happened in the US over the last 30 years, say since 2000, is we've really seen a situation where um, you know, any kind of profits are privatized. So say, for example, if a bank or an airline or something does well, then the CEO gets a $50 million pay package and then that's his money. But then, um, you know, losses are socialized. So every time a, a private company makes money, then you've got some billionaire who puts all the money in their pocket. And every time they lose money, they go and get a handout and then the public has to pay for it. And that's why, that's why the working class is poor. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of working class people but they are basically funding the losses of all of these organizations that they have nothing to do with. Yeah. Uh, so I've got a, two things. One, I've got a, a friend in the real estate, got two friends in the real estate game. One is um, basically saying with all the hits of, you know, hotels and bits and pieces, whatever, you know, they can, they, they're going to take a huge, huge loss to, to, to the business. Um, and then, the, but they're obviously quite liquid. They're saying, you know, in, in, in about six months time, it's going to be potentially a buying spree for them. Another friend, in the in the real estate space, um, basically saying those with lots of money right now are so hyped for the market because they're going to come through and just steamroll a bunch of distressed assets because they've got the, the the liquid capital to be able to do it. Do you you probably sit in the middle because some of your businesses are probably hurting in some respects, and as you said before, then then, then at the same time, and some of your your things are different. How do you if if you're in New Zealand, if you're just Cinder right now, 
are you happy with the steps you've made to help business or what would you change or have you been happy with the, the bank stuff for with what the government's done have you do you think that's been sufficient enough to keep the new zealand economy safe and going in the right direction yeah look i think i think the new zealand response has been good and they've done an amazing job of um doing things so fast um I mean, the, the government is saying um, that they are going to stand behind some, you know, business and personal loans. And as I say, once you start getting into that territory, it makes me nervous because effectively the, the government, I mean, the government has to stand behind things, I guess, to give confidence because, you know, if people if people start having no confidence, then that's when you get things like a run on the bank where everyone, you know, lines up and says, I want my money. And then they find out, well, you know, there isn't all of the money because, you know, money um, circulates in, a, in an economy, and as I say, everyone's every, one person's income is another person's expenses. So, in terms of physical dollars, there just aren't enough physical dollars for everyone to take their, their money out of the bank. And in 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 times where people have confidence in the money supply, that's fine. Um, but that's where this term "run on the bank" comes from. You know, everyone starts to get nervous, and they say, "Well, I want to take my money out of the bank, and I want to." put my money in the mattress. If we all go to the ATM machines tomorrow, there isn't going to be the money and then people are going to start freaking out and then, you know, it kind of ends up in the spiral where the less confidence yeah. there is. So the government has to say, look, you know, there's money there, there's confidence, um, you know, that kind of thing. But I mean, yeah, it's a really unique global scenario because oftentimes these, you know, economic things will happen in a specific region like Greece or, you know, problems with the Eurozone or, you know, maybe there's economic impacts from a, a war or, you know, something like that. But I mean, we've got a global situation where all, um, you know, uh, commerce has basically been shut down and that creates a, um, you know, supply side shock. So, you know, as I say, one person's income is another person's expenses. And so people aren't spending. And so the whole, uh, you know, money, money, money go around has stopped. And I'm spending a lot of time thinking about that, what it, what it means and, you know, trying to be optimistic. But I think, it, you know, it could potentially be very bad um, yeah, but I think I think what it's going to, as I say, I think that what's going to happen is that it's going to lead to the destruction of the US dollar, which was on the cards anyway. And I think it's an opportunity for the whole world to create a a new monetary system that works for the people, because um, you know the global money monetary supply is, as I say, it's not it's not capitalism that has an issue. Um, capitalism is a great system for effectively allocating resources and incentivizing people to to work and you know work hard and be rewarded the issue that with the whole world is this financialization where effectively there's a there's a small cabal of super super wealthy people that control the banks and the money supply and um, it's irrelevant whether you control a business if if you know the bank can you know um, lend itself money for free or create money to thin air which is effectively a form of taxation so you know if a, so the, one of the things that's um, you know, a bit crazy is we're sort of, you know, people have this concept of, okay, the New Zealand government's going to give me money or the US government's going to give me money. You know, there's bailouts happening all around the world, but people are forgetting the fundamental thing in that all governments are supported by the people. The people can never be supported by the government. The government is just a fictitious figurehead that we have in our mind. And so if the government just creates a whole lot of money and gives it to everyone, then all that happens is effectively there's more money in circulation. There's no more value. And so, you know, as I say, because the US has been the world's reserve currency, they've had this advantage where they've just printed money, given that paper money to China. China then has used that to trade with the US and the rest of the world at big deficits. But China's had all the production. So, 
you know, I've heard economists in the US say crazy things like, well, the US is never, ever going to go down in flames because we're the world's biggest consumer and um, the American consumer is the most powerful. We've got all the money and people spend all the stuff and that's what the world needs in order to keep the economy going. Well, you know, if things get really bad, would you rather have a nation of, you know, consumption or would you have a nation of production? The power is always in the production. So, yep. you know, let's consume. It's the same yeah, thing let's, with media. Well, let's, let's, imagine, let's imagine you have two little island nations, right? You have like, you know, Fiji and Niue or something. And, you know, one island nation, all they have is some, you know, paper trees and a printing press. And they trade with their friendly neighbor who makes, you know, microwaves and TVs and iPhones and medical supplies and all kinds of things. And they've had this situation constantly for 30, 40, 50 years where they just, you know, print some money, print some paper, send it overseas, and then they get all this free stuff. Well, when that other country decides that they need that stuff for themselves, they need that medical supplies for themselves, they need those kind of things for themselves, what are they going to do? The, the power is with the company that produces it. And what's happened is that all countries have outsourced their production of you know, goods and services to China, to Asian countries. And if the world starts running out of medical supplies and those countries want those things, then they're just going to hold on to them for themselves. And the price yep. of those things is going to escalate and rocket in other countries. And that's why I say um, when when the world realizes that the US economy is actually broke, which is basically going to happen, then we're going to see this huge thing where maybe, you know, the US consumer is going to start having to pay more and pay, you know, higher interest rates and, and more money for, for, for goods and services. So um, I, I think that, you know, this is not just a four week virus lockdown, I guess, if I can say, you know, one thing, this is a significant re-engineering. I think when this is finished, we're going to see a re-engineering of how the world works. And that could be for good or it could be for bad. And I think in the US, they're going to have a terrible um, virus outbreak. You know, Trump's done a terrible job. He's obviously going to be showing up. But, you know, the US inclination to be like, I'm not going to stay inside. You know, I'm an American with my gun. I'll do whatever the hell I want. That's not conducive to containing the spread. Um, that, you know, their hospitals have only just started being overwhelmed and the, the actual cases in the US of, of COVID-19 are probably, you know, 250,000, not the 80,000 reported because obviously they haven't done a lot of testing. And sometimes, you know, it takes two weeks for people to get really bad. So they have, you know, no symptoms for a week. They're transmitting the virus to all sorts of other people. It's very, you know, stealthy infection. They start getting sick and then they start getting really sick. So, I mean, we could have, you know, tens of thousands of people in the US that are on the verge of, you know, starting to swamp the system. I think that the, I think swamping the US health system's only just begun. And we've already seen, you know, doctors and nurses, you know, in tears and this kind of thing. But at the moment, the US basically has hospital beds, but soon they're going to start running out. And when they start running out, people are going to start freaking out. And the US nature is be like, I'm going to, you know, wander around with my gun. And then, you know, um, I, I think we're going to see martial law in the US because people... You know, in the US, well, you saw them angry. bringing out the, some of the National Guard into Chicago and New York and stuff. I mean, I was just looking at seeing, and now, yeah, US has now has the most reported coronavirus cases in the world 74,000 cases confirmed, New York being the epicenter, yada, yada, yada. Um, New, so, New Zealand's actually well positioned if we all flip in. As I was talking to Vic Crone um, this morning, CEO of Callahan, and she was saying, you know, if we just listen and stay inside and flip and follow our instructions, we're going to be way, 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 way better off than a lot of these places who haven't listened and, and gone around. Are you, you happy with our approach and the strategy in New Zealanders for New Zealand? 
Yeah, I think, I think um, you know, I mean, the thing about the virus is either the virus kills you or you kill the virus, right? So, mm. you know, human immune system ends up basically fighting the virus. And if you win, you're alive and then you have antibodies and the virus in your body is dead and it's not transmissible. Um, or you die and the virus has won. So the only way that the virus can live and survive is by jumping from person to person um, and either getting killed or killing the host. So if we're all isolated, then essentially, um, you know, the virus has to die out. Now, you know, there's obviously going to be a few people that are, you know, getting outside of their bubble and, um, you know, you know, passing things around. And so, I mean, I really hope for New Zealand that we've we've gone early. I think that was a great call by, you know, Jacinda. Um, absolutely essential to get on top of the virus, you know, because every country is going to go into lockdown. So when you do it, the earlier you do it, the better advantage you have. Because if you're going to do it anyway, you may as well do it early and then you've got a better chance of containment. So that was a number one call. That's the number one thing that the US has completely stuffed up. Um, and it's hard for the US because they've got 330 million, as I say, rugged individuals who don't like being told what to do. Um, whereas in New Zealand, I think we're a little bit, you know, uh, happier to yeah. go along for the common well, good. Well, it um, feels like New Zealand's more in the same page. It, it feels it's together. New Zealand feels together. Maybe, maybe New Zealand feels as we, maybe in some respects, America feels as me or individualistic, right? Yeah, but I think that the, um, you know, say, say for example, there's a there's a hundred percent success, and we wipe out the virus in four weeks fantastic we might be the only country in the world to do that um and it'll be an incredible result and we can resume our our, our um you know economy we you know we're an exporting nation of you know we've got 40 million sheep we've got food production we've got um you know good internet there's all sorts of things we can do for the world um and hopefully we might be able to resume as you know a little bit of an economic powerhouse with you know good yep. monetary monetary supply those kind of things but the risk is that if we um you know, if we don't eradicate the virus, well, we're just going to have to keep on going into lockdown and maybe there's repeated cycles of this going on. Or, you know, maybe we eradicate the virus after one round and then we let one person in on a ship or something and then they reinfect New Zealand and then we've got to go down again. So I think that, you know, after this lockdown period of, of four weeks or whatever, we're going to have minimal number of cases, but we're going to need absolutely religious testing and, you know, big resource thrown at, you know, testing populations and doing tracing. So in Hong, in Hong Kong and Singapore, they've used the, you know, the, the um, cell network records to basically say, you know, who, who was next to each other. Because, you know, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, your cell phone in your pocket's broadcasting your location, you know, every second of the, of the day. I think a lot of people probably do know that now. Yeah. But the cell companies have that. And so if you're in contact with someone, they can basically say, you know, your cell phone was next to this other person's cell phone and this other person's cell phone. So the cell phone companies can basically tell us, you know, who was next the to who, can who snatch. else. Yeah, and, and maybe that's a necessary thing. I mean, it, it feels a little bit um, Orwellian and 1984-ish, but, you know, if we can do good contact tracing so that every time we get a case, we go to all of the other people in the community who have been near that person, we test them, and then we get it under control, then I think we'll be able to reopen our economy. But we're going to have to have some strategy in four weeks to do that, and we're going to have to keep on testing. And I think we are going to have to keep our borders basically closed, and anyone that comes into the country is going to have to be put into, into quarantine for 14 days, you know, no but if buts, or questions, you know, testing every single person, because if New Zealand is lucky and we manage to contain this thing, then we are at risk of just having another breakout every time someone comes into the country. 
Um, I think Iceland's basically right. Yeah, I think Iceland's, and I mean, I think it is going to be. I mean, I think the US is basically going to be. You know, uh, the, the trouble, I guess, is the US is it's so much bigger than New Zealand. You know, we're talking a hundred times the size, hundred times as many people, and so there's always going to be little hot spots and breakouts where you, you know, have containment. I mean, the thing is, is it's just, you know, Iceland did what we're doing, and they've only got three hundred and thirty thousand people, so they're much smaller than New Zealand. So for them to go into total lockdown is is a lot easier for New Zealand, and for New Zealand to go into total lockdown is a lot easier than the US. But you know, in the US, you just you're just always going to have individualistic people that say, you know. If you, I'm not going to do lockdown. I'm a gun owner. You know, um, I've got right to free speech. I'm going to do whatever I want, and then they're going to infect, you know, the rest of the herd. So it may never be contained. That's what the beaches have been, though, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, um, are you talking New Zealand or are you talking Australia? Australia, with us all that the, the the photos and stuff coming out of as a Bondi or whatever, and it's just everyone is out, just hanging, high fiving, spring break on wild bullshit, and I'm like, I think that's maybe not good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, you know, we love our Australian brothers and sisters across the ditch, um, you know, but again, they they have a probably a more similar. Um, humanistic ethic i guess or you know uh feeling to i would say to the to the us the the australia and the us have kind of a a psychological um brotherhood i suppose and new zealand and the uk are probably a bit more similar and so australians i think tend to kind of be like you know screw it i'll do whatever i want and their response has been softer and um you know scomo is basically in the in the in the pocket of um you know big coal and you know he's trashing environmental regulations and you know, he he is, um, you know, basically being a bought politician in the same way that US politicians are, you know, they're, they're not for the people. They're just basically in the pocket of, um, you know, corporations. And so, you know, he's he's a lot more cautious because he's got those kind of corporate interests in his ear, I suppose. But I mean, you know, there's a ridiculous situation that they, I don't know whether you saw, they they put out this ban on, you know, hairdressing appointments for more than 30 minutes. 30 minutes. And then they did an about face and said that they weren't going to do that because there was such a public backlash. So they basically issued this, you know, very, very, you know, mild restriction on hairdressers. And then they got a back uh, a backlash and then pussied out and backed down. So, you know, that's not firm, decisive action. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna do something like say you can't have 30 minute hairdressing appointments, then you make the decision and you stick to it. But if the public gets wrapped up and then, you know, um, you know, uh, basically says, well, we're not going to do what you want, then, of course, that's just opening the door for the next time to basically say, you know, to encourage the public. It's like, you know, if you have yeah. Superman, if you have Superman, he's standing there and then you fire a bullet, Superman, a bullet at Superman and it bounces off his chest and then, you know, it doesn't do anything. Well, then, you know, Superman, you realise yeah. you're, you're out of bullets, you know. So the Australian government telling people what to do and then the people saying, no, we, you know, we're not going to do what you want, we're just going to go to Bondi, then, you know, the government, what power do they have? So, um, you know, I, I think they're, they're mismanaging the situation. Um, we can feel a bit smug because, you know, New Zealanders always like to feel a bit smug compared to Australia. But, I mean, uh, you know, as I say, they are our uh, brothers and sisters across the ditch. And so, you know, hopefully we don't end up in a situation where things get really, really bad. Um, but I think, unfortunately, Australia is going to have a, a sort of similar problem to the US unless they really get you know on top of it immediately which seems unlikely so we're going to have to we're going to have to be very um you know strict in terms of uh not um you know letting letting people in easy you know we we can't we can't sort of say well these are people from Australia or or New Zealanders living in Australia so they can have a free pass you know they they if anyone if anyone if, if New Zealand gets on top of our um pandemic 
and we don't have any cases and we manage to clear the country out, we can't be, you know, give a free ride to Aussies that want to come back compared to anyone else. It has to be anyone that's not from, you know, not in New Zealand, even New Zealanders has to go through a quarantine process and we have to have, you know, rigorous testing. And if there's any a case, then we have to have contact tracing and hopefully we'll be able to all get back to work in four weeks and maybe we'll be one of the most successful countries in the world of doing this because the vaccine is about, you know, 18 to 24 months away. Um, they've already got vaccines and trials, but, you know, they have to make sure that they don't, you know, hurt people, that they work, what the best method is, what the efficacy is. Um, I'm sure there's going to be conspiracy theories of, you know, there's going to be some anti-vax movements. I mean, we've sort of seen this type stuff. So, you know, then people are going to, you know, not want it and then they're going to infect everyone else. So, I mean, maybe this is maybe this is the death knell of the anti-vax movement because when people see that the vaccine works, I mean, it's, you know, you know, back in the day when you used to be able to get polio and, you know, there was kids walking around and, you know, crutches and crippled and that kind of thing, people weren't afraid of a polio vaccine because they're like, oh my God, I don't want my don't want my child to have these hideous diseases. And then we wiped out those diseases. But because those diseases don't exist anymore, then all of a sudden people get suspicious of, of you know, vaccines. But vaccines work, you know. So maybe if, um, you know, people see that a vaccine for this works, um, then, uh, you know. But, I mean, Bill Gates was warning about all of this, you know, five yeah. years ago. There's a TED talk of his where he, he basically lays out exactly how this is going to happen. And, you know, I feel really sorry for Bill Gates because he's a caring guy. He, he understands exponential infection he understands the world better than most people ever will he's generally trying to throw billions of dollars doing good for the world which is a lot more than can be said of the likes of bezos and you know zuckerberg and a lot of these billionaires just don't give a shit and they just hoard their money from themselves bill gates is generally trying to do good things for the world and he gets a lot of shit from you know vaccine people saying oh he's trying to you know he's trying to like you know infect us all he's you know trying to wipe out the population there's all these conspiracy theories all over the internet you know I worry that, you know, he's going to get, um, you know, gunned down or something like John Lennon. You know, John Lennon's trying to create peace on earth and then people are like, you know, F you, peace on earth. But I'm sure Bill Gates has good security. But, you know, Bill Gates has a lot of the, respect, you know. The timing of it, of um, uh, Bob Iger from uh, Walt Disney stepping down, Bill Gates stepping down as a chair, buys a $300 million yacht, goes, starts hanging out. Then there's the, the European patent that got filed in 2014 for the coronavirus vaccine, which got... Um, approved I, I, and I googled this on Google um, patents around uh, and then it got approved in November 2019 that's very uh, coincidental um, I think you're right though I saw that TED talk he claimed it he picked it he called it so as New Zealand if I was to zoom all the way up stay inside be a good boy good girl and in a month's time we could uh, arguably be the, the, the hotbed for the biggest magnet for well, that, global that, business because we can do business. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, we, we, we thank God that the, you know, the government spent $1.5 billion on the, you know, the UFB fiber network. I think that's probably possibly one of the best yeah. government investments that's ever going to be. Vic said um, that I as mean, well. yep. you know, New Zealand, you know in, in Australia, they have the national broadband network, which was kind of the equivalent of um, the UFB network. It's an absolute disaster. It's been terribly implemented. You know, they're paying $100 for like 20 megabit connections, um, which are contended. So what contended means is that in Australia, you have um, the internet service providers can rent a piece of fiber from your house to the closest exchange, but then they have to pay huge exorbitant fees to um, multiplex those connections from the exchange back to the internet provider where 
you know, there's only a certain amount of capacity and they have to pay for upgrades and it's kind of a money-making scheme for, you know, Telstra who was running the backhaul type stuff. In New Zealand, we don't have those contended backhaul paths. So basically, um, an internet service provider buys fibre from the four local fibre companies, you know, Chorus, North Power, Enable and Ultrafast Fibre, each of whom won, you know, a number of, uh, one or a number of the fibre regions, 27 fibre regions around New Zealand. So like, for example, in Christchurch, they've got Enable and Enable got the government money to go and roll out the fibre network. But essentially, um, those four fibre companies, you know, they deliver fibre from the person directly to the internet provider um, on essentially an uncontended basis. We don't have a lot of contention. And so different internet providers can provide, um, you know, different levels of service. You know, do you want a great help desk? Um, do you want, you know, fast speeds? Um, and, um, you know, so each internet provider can, you know, kind of add their special source. But in general, the New Zealand internet, um, you know, landscape is not contended. And I mean, you can get from a number of companies, including Voyager and Spark and whatever you, I mean, you can get a, you know, gigabit connection with, you know, a thousand megabits down and 500 up that works pretty much at a gigabit speed, which is insane. I mean, I've, I've mm. lived in the US um, for the last four years, half the time. I was, I was very fortunate that I actually got rid of my apartment in Los Angeles in December, which was very lucky and fortuitous. And, you know, it's, it's, the internet connections over there are not what they think. You know, people think, oh, the US has great internet infrastructure, but it, it's just not because um, the way that it works in the US is that um, it's all private companies and each private company rolls out whatever infrastructure they want. So, you know, they have like cable internet, which is about 50 megabits, which runs over the cable TV signal. And then they have, you know, some companies might have bought some of the old AT&T copper stuff. So they have, you know, some DSL type stuff and then they have some fixed wireless stuff. But in any region, you might be able to get two or three different types of service from two or three different types of companies. But in some instances, you can only get a single service from a single company because they're a monopoly in that region and there's no, you know, generic government money. So like in San Francisco, when I was there, you know, one of my friends, the best they could get was a shitty ADSL connection. And they're in the heart of Silicon Valley because there was no competition and there was no government infrastructure. So New Zealand has just fantastic, fantastic internet. I mean, you know, world beating internet and, and our internet speeds compared to the likes of Singapore and Hong Kong are rocketing up. And it's been an amazing feat because um, in Singapore and Hong Kong, you know, they've had they've had gigabit internet for a long time. But, you know, Singapore is only like four miles wide or whatever it is. So it's this tiny little island of skyscrapers. And it's very easy to basically run, you know, a single fiber into the basement of a ton of skyscrapers and then divvy that fiber up. It's much, much harder to run a fiber network past a whole lot of farmland and, yeah. you know, small houses and single dwellings and all that kind of thing. So... In terms of population density, I think New Zealand has the best internet infra infrastructure in the entire world for cool. the density of housing that we have. You know, I think we're about number 17 worldwide in internet speed. So, yeah, if we can get the country humming and we can do um, a lot of work for, for the rest of the world, then that's great. I mean, I guess the other thing is that we don't know what the immunity level of COVID-19 is going to be. I mean, it could be... Um, you know, if you have it and survive, you might be immune for it for life. You might be immune to it for, you know, 12 months. Different kind of viral strains have different levels of immunities that the body develops. But, you know, say, for example, if it's a, you know, a year or two years of immunity, what we're going to start seeing is, I believe worldwide, there's now about 80,000 people that have survived. And so those people are going to be, um, you know, the bedrock of things like, you know, caring for other people because they're not going to be able to get sick. So at the moment, everyone has to be terrified. You know, everyone has to be in like vacuum beds and hospitals have to be locked down. 
But I mean, the other thing that might start getting the world going is that pretty soon you're going to start to have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who have had the virus and survive who can then, you know, do things like food deliveries and all that kind of thing and keep the rest of the world, you know, running. Uh, that's, um, a good, that's a good point because yeah. they've already gone through it. Yeah. Is Ian Hyde still the CEO of Chorus? Um, uh, I should know the answer to that question. I don't I know. I think is. so. Yeah. If, if he is, I'll hit him up because he's, I should, I should know as well. He's a homie, but I don't know if he's, he's still in the mix. I have a look. Um, this has been a good yarn, yeah, yeah, man. You've, you've gone, you've gone wide and you've gone deep and you've had, clearly had some shit on your chest. You want to get out, which is, which is awesome. Yeah. I think so. I know oh, it's good. No, you go. Oh yeah. I, I'm just saying, yeah, I sort of, um, uh, yeah, I like to, you know, constantly research things. I've got, you know, I've got one of those OCD sort of obsessive minds that, you know, I, know I think, I, I think entrepreneurs and business people are, you know, can be good at that kind of thing. So, yeah, it's been a real interesting ride. Yeah, as I say, I I, I knew nothing about the economy in two thousand and seven, and I've been a fantastic business person and made a huge amount of money, and then I got completely caught out not knowing anything about economics, and so I've basically spent the last ten years trying to figure out, you know, where did I go wrong? How can I see the next crash? You know, um, forming opinions about things, um, and you know, as I say, I have quite contrarian opinions on some things like, for example, bailouts, but I've thought very carefully about them. And so, you know, it pains me when I see basically the the consumer um, or the blue collar worker of the world being told that they are being helped and then actually they're being screwed over and, you know, people not understanding what's going on because they haven't, you know, kind of paid attention. So if I can help, you know, some people kind of understand or, or add some value or, swing people's opinion um, and get a better result for, um, you know, blue collar workers. Um, I mean, my parents were blue collar workers. I grew up relatively poor. I'm not like a rich kid family. Um, so, you know, I, I have been successful, but I want to live in a world where, you know, anyone that works hard can be successful. And that used to be the American dream, but it's not the American dream any longer. The, the American dream has been perverted by political influence and, you know, corporate influence and, you know, it, they're no longer the land of the free and they don't have a system of capitalism. So capitalism's getting the blame, um, but capitalism, free market capitalism created all the wealth that the US has and the perversion of that capitalism and the financialization of the monetary supply and influence in politics has destroyed that, you know. Mate, you're a flipping brain, mate. I'll give you that. Holy shit. No, but I, I can, I see the angles. I can, I can understand I mean, when you copy someone else's strategy, reliable data equals reliable results. And if, if what you're saying is true, the way it plays out, you can kind of see this thing like chess and I can kind of see those different pieces. Um, if it's cool with you, I'm going to definitely be keeping you in the loop. And, and actually, um, I'm trying to think of like, who would be the person that thinks the exact opposite of you and just watch you to just go to town, just talking Sounds about that <laughs> so, Okay, Yeah, so I've, kind of, I've kind of been on my own mind for a lot of this stuff. And, um, you know, you never really get um, the ability to defend your position until you have to do it in a, in a debating sense. So, you know, you I, appreciate, I, appreciate the, um, I appreciate the opportunity to come on and sort of speak my mind. But, you know, I would, like, I would like the ability to, um, you know, kind of expose um, a little bit more. As I say, I mean, my, my main job is running an internet company, uh, and so that's what I do day to day. But, you know, economics has kind of become a bit of a passion. So, you know, I'd love to get on, you know, Radio New Zealand or, you know, whatever and, like, really, yeah. you know, debate with some teeth people. And if I've, if I've got the wrong ideas or I can be proven wrong, then, you know, I'll go away and refine my ideas. But 
I haven't had that ability. So yeah, appreciate the, yeah. the discussion. No, of course, yeah. man. And it, it's um it's been crazy even just um I guess personally seeing your journey from where where you're at when I mean twenty nine bucks with bunch of money in the bank and going through the journey you've had and you've had some health shit and personal shit and commercial shit and everything just um different um experiences give a different perspective and it's clear that your your perspective is not only ch changed but i guess more evolved and matured if you've gone through different things and and i i think you, i would i would easily say your self-awareness has definitely um uh improved over time yeah, thanks. <laughs> I don't know whether that's an insult or a, or a compliment. No, 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 it's no. a compliment. <laughs> I don't know if you totally remember when we'd first first met yonks ago. It was Queenstown, uh, Verve Clico 2000, and Clico in the Snow. Shit, maybe six or seven years ago. But the vibe and energy of how you thought about things and community and people and attention and and ego and 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 money and business and just everything is a lot different to now same thing same with me i was i was way different thing it's 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 cool you're going through a good journey it's good you, it's a cool yeah, i think i think yeah. you get more you obviously get more mature as you get older um you know i read somewhere that um they say that you know a man doesn't become a man till 43 and i don't know why that that age was that but i'm 43 now so hey, i kind of feel like i am i am a man but also um yeah, some health issues and a divorce and all kinds of things. Um, Real world you know, shit. Not for another, me, for another me on my ass. And yeah, I mean, I, as I say, I grew up not necessarily poor, but you know, with a feeling of lack. I mean, my my parents lost all their money in the nineteen eighty seven share market crash, and um, that's really what got me interested in business because I, hmm. I sort of thought, how do I avoid this fate? And you know, I don't want to have that happen to me. Um, you know, in the future. And then, you know, my life went swimmingly from basically that point on, you know, I was sort of like the golden boy where, you know, yeah. everything I did, you know, relatively touched to gold. And even the, even the 2008 financial crisis, you know, I was still okay. Um, but then in my, in my thirties, you know, a few health issues. Um, yeah. As I say, I've, uh, yeah, unpleasant divorce. Um, my fault, uh, you know, made me reflect, you know, my ego. I spent a year um, following Tony Robbins around. So, um, one of the reasons that I started my own business is I listened to Tony Robbins's, you know, personal power tapes at, and when I was like 18 years old, yeah. as a lot of kind of, you know, people do. And then he rocked me up as like, you know, you can do anything. And I was like, well, I don't care that I'm 18. I'm going to do it. You know? So I kind of owe a little bit of my success to Tony Robbins, you know, way back in the day. And then after Thank I went you. through my, after I went through my divorce, I was a bit lost. And then I saw a poster or something for a date with destiny in the Gold Coast. And I thought, oh, I'll do it. And then I went across there and, um, you know, went to one of his seminars and he's got nine different, um, nine different, you know, courses that he runs. And so I ended up following Tony around for a year and sort of 2016. Um, and we, did you to, meet him? Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, well, he knows me by name. We, we're good buddies. Um, so, uh, you know, um, I'm sure if you yeah, dropped to, up and however much it costs to follow him for a year, he probably knows who you are. He'd be like, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, seems I went to, <laughs> I went to 18, I went to 18 of his seminars all around the world um, oh, and was basically sitting up the front, um, you know, so he, he pretty soon started to yeah, recognize me. So what did you, yeah. so, so just quickly on that, cause I, I obviously going to have back. So my, mine was going through um, having children stuffed me up, yeah. having children changed my perspective and then also um, losing my grandparents, losing my grandparents. Yeah. Cause I'm named after them, Ron and Betty for Rebecca. Right, that stuffed right. me up as well. And it, I think these moments hit you, you know, you had your personal stuff, commercial stuff, you know, relationships, whatever. And it changes. And I mean, if you're saying 43, 
dude, I've still got nine years to go till I become an adult. I don't know if I'm ever grow up. I'm not sure. <laughs> I've gone pretty wide so far. It's like, geez, who knows where I'm going to be? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, um, yeah, I'm sorry to hear about your grandparents. My, mm. my, my father passed away about six months ago. Oh, and um, that was a uh, yeah difficult situation because he, yeah. he took it, he ended up taking his own life. He, you know, struggled oh. with depression and things. And um, yeah, it was it was interesting. I you know I've, I'm d- dealing with that and I've dealt with that. Um, but subsequent to my dad taking his own life, I've had three friends take their own life in short succession. And um, in the last and, year, uh, yeah, just recently. Um, and actually. I had an ex-girlfriend of mine um, that was, you know, murdered in, in the USA um, hor- horrifically. Um, and that's a whole different thing because when someone that you know is not here and, and you know, it's their own hand, that's that's obviously one thing and terrible. But um, I, I don't know what's going on, but I've had, I've had four people that I was close to on a, you know, first contact, first yeah. you know, kind of basis, um, either take their own life or, or pass away. So... You know, even before the um, you know COVID thing, there was obviously you know pain out there, and I think yeah. um, not in my dad's scenario, but you know this is one of the things that it, it pains me to think that, um, as I say, blue collar workers of the world are you know have have not had any wage growth yeah. since the nineteen seventies. I mean, in the in the nineteen fifties and sixties, you know, you could you could be uh, had a, have a boring blue collar job as a guy. You could have a two cars and a holiday home and a, and a big family and your wife at home looking after the kids and um you know that whole kind of american dream but also worldwide dream has gone and i understand some of the reasons for that and i understand some of the solutions and um unfortunately um the powers that be who have the best interests in um perpetuating that system continually push out misinformation um about the causes of that and so you know immigrants get blamed um you know uh, you know as donald trump does you know and so you know, people were sick of the system. They were sick of sick of having like the likes of Hillary thrown, you know, chucked down their throats by the Democratic National Convention. They were disgusted with the political process. So Donald Trump got the voting public, um, you know, because he was like drain the swamp. I'm not a politician, um, but he's had his hand until even worse than you know any politician before him. You know, he's he's um, you know he plays golf half the time. He's you know, enriching his family. He hasn't divested his business interests. I mean. You know, back when uh, Jimmy Carter was the U.S. president, he he had like a tiny little peanut farm, and he felt so um, he felt so bad that there might be some sort of conflict of interest that he sold his peanut farm um, because you know the U.S. president's supposed to be impartial, and every U.S. president before Donald Trump has at least divested themselves of their business interests before taking on you know something, and and Donald Trump is like flagrantly. Um, you know, uh, using his hotels for, you know, conventions and finding ways to make money. And I mean, it's basically what you've got is you've got the mafia in the white, you've got the mafia in the white house and then he goes and blames, you know, Oh, it's Mexicans. It's, you know, it's immigrants. It's, it's whatever. So, you know, that kind of thing, you know, really hurts me. And I think, um, you know, just why I'm talking about that, as I say, you know, people killing themselves in ever increasing numbers, you know, a lot of that stress um, or part of that stress, you know, comes from the way that society is built and, um, you know, how how financial the financial system is constructed. And the, the real problem that we've got is, you know, not capitalism and uh, rugged individualism and, um, you know, people being motivated to deliver value and make a buck. It's, it's the people that control the financial system that steal wealth from everyone. Because, 
you know, if if you had a fair financial system or a monetary system that was, say, for example, backed by something real like gold, then, um, you know, the only way that a government can get money from the population is either through tax taxation or inflation. And so, you know, inflation is is not good. And, um, you know, when prices go up, it's, it's, you know, when the price of milk is more and the price of, you know, clothes are more and your rent is more, that's not a good thing for the consumer. But, We've been told that inflation, you know, I mean, the Federal Reserve says we have to have inflation at 2%, and, and the Reserve Bank of New Zealand says we have to have inflation at this sort of band, because inflation allows governments of the world to effectively continually create a small amount of money, which then takes the value um, of everyone else's savings and money away, and they don't have to do it through convincing the public that what they want. So, you know, in the US, they've got this $800 trillion war budget, if, if they had to get that legitimately through real taxation and people were really paying for it, then, um, you know, people would question, well, do we, need, do we need to have the world's biggest military when, you know, there's homeless people in the street and people are suffering? Um, I think we both know the answer. You know, yeah. And so, but, you know, so governments basically take the easy route. They just create the money and then that's, that's effectively a form of theft from everyone else. So, you know, I'm, I'm interested in seeing the world's monetary system overhauled um, I don't know that it's Bitcoin, but I think it could be something, you know, a successor to Bitcoin or something like that. And, uh, you know, it's a bit of a passion. But there's a lot of people hurting even before COVID. And I, I mean, I hope that, you know, our suicide rates, we've got some of the worst in the world. As I say, I've had a number of people close to me, you know, kill themselves before this happened, um, including my father. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, this isolation stuff, there, there's, you know, we're, we're going to be dealing issues with, you know, family violence um you know those kind of things i you know really hope that um you know this is not a massive social problem and we can all kind of pull together but there's there's definitely going to be some unhappy people out there and we all need to you know pull together and find ways to to help and stick together basically i would 150 percent agree it's something that i've been talking about um if it's cool with you i'm definitely going to I'll find out who your kryptonite is and I'm going to bring him back on and let you guys okay. go town. So either way, it's going to be at work. I appreciate your time, brother. Um, thanks so much. It's, it's awesome. And proud to see your headspace get to where it is, man. It's, you've got a, it's, it's a cool vibe. And I think as well, you're probably at a pretty, I guess, privileged position with the journey that you've gone through and the stuff that you've done to be able to have a, a platform to be able to see things in a different um, potential type of way than, um, than a lot have the others even to be able to speak as freely and openly as you do because you've got options so I appreciate your time Seb it's been been awesome um, having a chat with you and no doubt we'll link up with you again yeah, soon. Yeah no worries thank you for the opportunity and uh, sorry if we've gone a bit over time <laughs> Bro, look forward, look real forward chat, to talking next time. Yeah. Real chat is, is always is good times appreciate it brother um that has been the bro uh cb woodhouse uh ceo of um voyager internet man good tangents went deep good rants good vent good vents good solid insights and clearly a big brain that's doing some cool shit um i am going to uh, rush home pick up some mexican for my family and then i'm going to do some dinner stuff and then i'm going to be back here um and we'll be back at uh, 4 30 with brent norling uh, from norling law founder um good bastard and um he's got some tips for any of the small business owners or uh, if you own leases or commercial property he's got some stuff to potentially talk about there um awesome chats there with with um Sebs. man shit he's come a long way i mean we all do when we grow up but man what a journey to look into some of that too uh uh, be good, everyone. See you soon. Peace.